Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Every now and again, a book hits the shelves that is that little bit different. Such may well be said of a memoir recently published called In Ordinary Times, Fragments of a Family History. And the author's name is Carmel McMahon. The story between the covers combines a personal memoir, which includes, I suppose, the familiar Irish themes of immigration and alcoholism, but but which I have to say in this case are explored with a unique voice. It combines that with a, a tread meditating on Irish history, both while the country was under colonial rule and going back to pre-Christian times. And in it, I suppose there's an exploration of how our history as a people can impact on the personal through things like intergenerational trauma and also other less dark aspects of that kind of history. All of this would be fine and well, apart from the fact that it is also, I have to say this, delivered in a kind of a lyrical prose that is only a joy to read. And from what I can gather, it's one that is very much chiming with an awful lot of readers. So we decided we'd invite on the author herself, and that's Carmel McMahon. Carmel, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me on, Mick. It's a thrill to be here. Thank you. Carmel, I suppose we could start at the beginning. You're you're from County Meath. Um, a lot of your story concerns your time in the USA. So how did you end up in New York with the world at your feet? Well, I ended up in New York quite by accident. I grew up, as you say, in Ashburn County Meath on a housing estate. And I there was 10 people in my family a uh, big family, lots of brothers and sisters. And I was pretty average student in school and I wanted to go to college. But, you know, it, it was a sort of a, I, I say in the book, a sort of a far away idea, if you like. You know, there weren't, you, nobody had been to college in my family on either side. And um, when all the other kids were you know, getting ready for the exams and doing all that kind of thing, you know, my parents were sort of heavy on, you know, getting a job. When, when are you going to when are you going to get a job? There's a job going here. Maybe that would work out for you, that kind of thing. So um, my mom had a, a, a Saturday job in a clothes shop in town. So she um, got me a job there. And I was working there after my um, leave insert. And it was, I, I think, one of the, the most unhappy times of my life. You know, like it just it was just very, very clear. I wasn't suited to it. And I was looking for a way out. I was really looking. I wasn't planning on emigrating or anything like that. And a local um, woman, a photographer uh, for the Meath Chronicle, I think, she stopped me on the street one day and she said, you know, you're, you're a very uh, pretty young woman. You should be a model. And she took a photograph of me and she w- went on the cover of the Meath Chronicle and everyone thought it was lovely. And I ended up going to a modeling school in Dublin, going to a convention in New York, getting a modeling contract. And in that time, um, I had just applied for the work visa, the J-1, 
um, uh, whatever it was, whatever visa it Morrison, was. I think it might have been, was it? No, 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 b- before that. Oh, before and, the Morrison, yeah, excuse me, right, yeah. So then I was waiting for that to come through and then the Morrison and the Donnelly visa started up. So I applied for a Morrison and I got that like everybody did. I mean, most of the people I know who applied for it got it, right? So uh, that I took, I got a one-way ticket out and that was me gone gone to New York. So I, the agency that I went to, to had a, an apartment that uh, women, the young women stayed in and I stayed there for the first little bit, and but not for long. Okay, and despite that, Carolyn, you relate in the book that uh, very early on, you were actually attracted to the written words, that um, poetry so. was something that you found appealing. Definitely, definitely. But it was, again, you know, as I say, like the same thing as going to college, if you don't grow up around... If, if that exposure isn't there, I mean, I love seeing today in Ireland, there's a big push for children to get into literature and reading and all of these efforts around around literary arts. I, when I was growing up, it didn't seem to exist. I mean, I, I, I when I look back, I see that, you know, um, there was a, a tiny library in our in our village. We sometimes, my folks took, you know, my mom would take us, but then, you know, it might be six months before we went again. There wasn't any books in our house. Um but I, in English class, was really the, the class I looked forward to. You know, I loved literature. I loved, you know, when I started reading, that was it. You know, I was off to the races, like about age 14 or so. Yeah. And so you go to New York now. Most people would think, I went there myself. I, from what I mm-hmm. got, I was roughly the same age as yourself, about yeah. 20. And uh, uh, the building sites, like most Irish over there, yeah. I headed for. But somebody heading over, as you did, pre-contract arranged as you say you yeah. put up in a place a modelling contract yeah. sounds like glamour sounds like the it kind of New York we look about in the movies like. <laughs> sounds like but I suppose if you're you know if you're a real model it might have been the case but you know I was not um, you know I wasn't A I wasn't physically cut out for this job and B I, wa- I didn't have the heart for it I mean it's it's not where my interests lay it's not I wanted um, more independence. I wanted, you know, I was sort of a hungry for this, um, to live my life kind of thing. You know, I, 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 I didn't see a future for myself in Ireland at all, you know, at that time, you, you know, you're talking about the early nineties, which is, you know, I, you know, you probably know yourself, like coming out of the big recessions of the 1980s before the Celtic tiger. I mean, there weren't a whole lot of opportunities. So most of my class, most of my, um, you know, uh, the people I knew in school and the people I grew up with emigrated. Most of us did, you know, and um, for myself and three of my siblings emigrated in one year. So that was a big shock. 50% of us off, you know, left home uh, for my parents. That was that was pretty tough. That must have been, um, yeah, for, for, for yeah, the, your parents. It was, it was. Um, they, you know, uh, they didn't say as much at the time. I mean, they wanted us to ha- to live our lives and to have the the kinds of experience they wanted us to live the, our, a full life, you know, so they were, they were encouraging of whatever we chose to do. Um, but they said it was years later. My mom told me she cried every day. She said the house was just not the same without all the chaos and, and all of it. So, but there were still four young kids here at home, you know, so, you know, the, and now the house is full of grandkids. So it's never been a quiet house. You know, right. So you're in New York, and mm-hmm. you kind of, I think, drift back towards the Irish community rather than having gone over there and, yeah. and started out as, as you say, it would appear to be a sort of a glamorous start, but mm-hmm. didn't necessarily work out that way. 
Mm -hmm. So the, you know, it's, it's funny in, in my generation, um, if you look at the, the sort of demographics there, a lot of the younger people were starting to move out of the Irish neighborhoods in, like in mm. New York, for example, in Queens, there was, um, uh, Woodside, Woodside Sunnyside, yeah. all of these places. And, um, you know, I just spoke to somebody who lived there for a long time. I spoke to them recently and they said, there's hardly any Irish people around here anymore. You know, there's other groups come in and, you know, neighborhoods shift and change. But when I was young, you know, my generation of immigrants would sort of, even though, you know, the guys worked construction, the gals worked in um, waitressing and this kind of thing, um, they were still trying not to, from what I could tell from the group of people I knew, they were still trying to, um, not get into the Irish neighborhood. They were trying to break out, maybe, may, you know, try their hand at, you know, music or acting or painting, try to get into some sort of creative, not career, but like do something creative with their lives. I mean, it seemed to me to be the case. Then you ended up as, you you, you relate, you, you were waitressing, you know, the kind yeah. of stuff that yeah. we were, as construction waitressing, whatever that people got into. And then you had, the phone call from home the, oh, I, and I suppose it's a fair to say that any of us who've been abroad we know the kind of call even hadn't received myself thank God but I've known others who had and, and, and that can be um, that can be a bolt Oh absolutely yeah you know it was um, I was in New York I think at that point I was there about five years so I had things were coming together for me I had a nice apartment you know with roommates I had you know met somebody uh, the year before um, it was my first sort of, you know, adult relationship. Um, uh, things were going well. I was working in, I was doing the waitressing, but I was also part of an art collective, which was very exciting for me at the time and um, in Brooklyn. And, you know, my I was at the bar one night, my mother called and I always say like, you know, we weren't in a generation of calling home an awful lot or being in yeah. touch. We didn't have the social media aspect of things. So we weren't in touch, in, you know, connected so much. So when, whenever somebody called from home, there'd always be sort of a, a tightening, like a bit of a jolt, like, you know, this, and uh, you, you know, there's this joke that we would, uh, in the Irish community, we would ask each other, well, you know, um, you know, say my mother called and we say, well, who died? You know, this kind of thing, yeah. this kind of joke. But um, my mom called anyway, and it was midnight on June 21st of 1998. And she was calling to tell me that I had to come home. And I write in the book, you know, I remember the conversation exactly. You know, she says, you have to come home. And I say, why? And she says, you know, um, I can't tell you over the phone. And I say, well, who? And she says, your brother, Peter. And I said, what can you not tell me? And she says, he he's dead. So this was, you know, it was a, a cataclysmic moment in my life because I can look back and see, well, this is the moment where things really shifted for me. You know, things really started to derail. At the time, of course, I didn't see it like that. You know, I came back to Ireland. I spent a good six weeks here with my family um, uh, for the funeral and all of that business. Um, and then when I got back to New York, I just couldn't get back into life as it had been. You know. And and that, Carmel, it's, it struck me there that that going back to New York, as you say, you're home six mm. weeks, and in the midst of tragedy, there's that closeness. And you, you, you from what I gather, you seem a relatively close family anyway, yeah. mm -hmm. but you've that tightness around that going back to New York after that of itself is a pretty lonely journey, I'd imagine. 
very, very lonely. I mean, um, you know, I there's in retrospect, I think, well, I wouldn't have gone back or I shouldn't have gone back. But there's this saying Carl Jung has, and it's sort of like, you know, your destiny is what you meet on the road you take to avoid it. And I kind of feel like going back was the beginning of a journey that for me was very much a part of the sort of journey of my life, you know, which the, this book is a product of, you know, it was a spiritual, emotional, you know, physical journey that I had to go through in a way in order to become myself. And that led you, I think then you started getting a taste for um, oh, for boy. alcohol. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A taste, uh, like that's uh, a thirst, uh, an unquenchable thirst. <laughs> it's like the old saying about somebody... He enjoys a pint. He might be a raving exactly. alcoholic, but we describe exactly. him as he enjoys a, po- he a pint. A, yes, a pint. He likes a drink. Yeah, or she likes a drink. It's true. Um, but I can see that that's really when the drinking took off because I I, I felt this, um, uh, you know, there was this disconnection between, you know, after having read quite a bit about uh, sibling loss and everything else, I can sort of see, yes, yes, that there is this thing that happens when a person loses a sibling. It's like an interruption to the to the story of your life. Like this was a childhood, those long years of childhood that we have that is somehow broken when a sibling is taken out of that story. And it can be very disconcerting and very, um, and of course, there's all the other stuff around it. Like after years after, you know, people would ask, you know, I'm saying, I'm sorry to, to hear you lost a brother. How's your mother? How's your mother doing? You know, there was like this, you know, the mother first, then your father. And then, you know, it's sort of, um, there wasn't really anything around, you know, sibling loss when, when in, in the nineties, yeah, maybe there was for some people, but not for a big, crazy uh, working class family in County Mead at the time, you know, there was probably supports available that we weren't aware of. Yeah, and I, I just found it interesting. And and then you document uh, your journey into alcoholism mm-hmm. um, mm. and there's various versions of that we've all seen in different guises. Yeah. But one thing I'm curious about, Carol, as you said, like quite obviously um, that you, 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 your, your brother's death and the fallout was... Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. An agent in driving you in in that way. Do you ever wonder if you hadn't that kind of trauma at that particular point in your life? You're in your mid twenties or so. Would you think have have ended up the same way? To put it that way, I have no doubt that I would, Mick. I have no doubt right. it was. It's in me, you know. This thing, it's in me, you know. Like all of the, all of the sort of behaviors and the the thought processes and the emotional upsets and the all of those uh, kind of isms are there. It's, it was just like a, if you like a match thrown on a, a you know, it, it it's definitely. It, I've no doubt that I would have ended up whether I stayed in Ireland or not, whether my brother died or not. I I would have found my way. I think to drinking. 
I think in my story, it's very clear that the drinking kicked off after yeah. after my birth. Because prior to that, I wasn't. Um, I, I I mean, I was drinking certainly from you know, but late, but late because. Um, you know, I, I. You made a deal yeah, with God when you were I young. I did. I mean, I, I when I look, I, the part of part of the story in the book is this, like, the story of how you know in the nineteen eighties in Ireland when I was growing up, like ninety eight percent of Catholics in this country went to mass every Sunday. You know, and how that impacted the psyche of a child. You know, I was so overly religious. You know, I was always saying my doing my prayers. I had reams of you know. Little, uh, you know, I, I, it's documented in the book, like the, the sort of neurotic element of that impression of Catholicism on the for, on my forming psyche, if you like. But anyway, yeah, I, I mean, I definitely would have, have, have ended up going down that road. And like an awful lot of people and there's fantastic results in it and people come out of it. You, um, you went to AA in I, New York and mm-hmm. some elements of that are interesting I come back to Carl Jung mm-hmm. you mentioned him and uh, an encounter he had with Bill Wilson who mm-hmm. was one of the founders of A and, and this introduced uh, I think the, that there's a spiritual element to the condition Definitely I mean I, I definitely think it's a, a an illness of you know mind, body and spirit you know and um, I love that that uh, you know the founder of AA reached out uh, to I actually I saw the letter that he wrote uh, that Carl Jung wrote to Bill Wilson in the Wilson House in Bedford, New York. Um, it's you know it's this uh, this incredible thing. You know it's he says you know that I haven't seen anything you know work other than this sort of spiritual experience. So and he and he as a psychologist had been treating people for years you know, in, in, in terrible, terrible conditions, like the wealthiest families in Europe saying, I don't know what to do with my kid, you know, send them to the top guy, send them to this, you know, brilliant Carl Jung character and see if they can clean him up. And, and you know, he gets the, the alcoholic and finds that, you know, his, his uh, he said he, the only thing that he can recommend is what he says is um, spiritus contra spiritum which is um, spirit against spirits, you know. So it's like this idea that uh, the evolution of the spirit, of the, the spiritual self will help to combat the illness. And what brought you down there, and it's the way you related in terms of another brother of yours and, and, and family runs through mm. the whole book, another brother of yours who was based in Greece, mm. you sent him a Christmas card. I know. And, and uh, I, 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 he, may, he may have got a bit of a shock when he saw the, the top line of the card, I so know, to speak. I know. He says, um, you know, so I'd had a, a very dark year, you know, it was sort of the, the coming to the end, like the last couple of years of my drinking were so lonely and so dark, you know, I was barely functioning. And, you know, I think people think you have to be sort of, um, you know, on the street or you have to have lost your job or you have to have committed a crime. It's like, you know, some of some of us can hold down a job, me by the skin of my teeth, literally, by was hanging on by a hair. Um, and, you know, I wasn't paying my bills. I wasn't cleaning my apartment. I wasn't going grocery shopping. I was afraid to go to the grocery store. I talk about it in the book. I was afraid to leave the house. Um but I, I wrote a Christmas. I, the one thing I did that year was write a Christmas card to my brother in Greece. And I said, you know, I've had the worst year of my life. 
uh, Merry Christmas, Love Carmel. And he called me again, which was very unusual because we, you know, we weren't in the habit of calling each other at that time. And I'd been in America 15 years at that point, and, and he hadn't ever called me. So <laughs> it was a bit of a surprise. And he says, uh, look, what's going on? And I said, um, you know, I gave him a litany of things of what was wrong. You know, I, I blamed everything that, you know, my job, my the guy I was dating, the, the you know, the, the, the climate, the wars, all of this business. And he just said, look, I, 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 why don't I come and visit? So he came. My roommate was away on, on holiday and um, he came to visit me and I went to pick him up from the airport and he walked out. Um, and I didn't recognize him. I was looking around for my brother and I didn't recognize him at all. And it was because his, he was so different because he'd been sober at that point about four years. And instead of this like hunched kind of angry guy coming out that I was looking for, you know, this guy walks out standing tall, his eyes are bright, you know, his skin is clear. And he was so kind and so funny and so um, sharp, you know, like very quick witted and very humorous. And um, he stayed with me for, you know, a week or whatever it was. And um, he just sat across from me every evening at the my kitchen table. And I drank whiskey. He drank coffee. We both smoked like chimneys. And he, um, he, he just told me about his drinking life. You know, he didn't try to get me sober. He didn't try to tell me this is what you need to do or that's what you need to do. He just um, told me his story. And after he left, he um, so something had shifted in my mind. Something had, it was like he had planted some seeds that had taken root and were growing without my knowledge, if you like. And, um, uh, but he, uh, later I said to him, after I got sober, I told him, you know, it's really because it's something you did there, you know? And he said, Carmel, I had no idea you were drinking too much. I had no idea you had a problem even, you know, he didn't see me as being, so it's like, I think it's like this um, sort of miraculous thing, you know, that that happened at that time. And yes, you still didn't stop. Then they no, took another no. encounter with somebody. You, you, you went back to mm -hmm. church. I tell you what happened. <laughs> so it's pretty funny because um, after my brother left, um, as I say, he'd planted some seeds and they were growing without my realizing it. And I really knew something was wrong. You know, I, I really, that's, you know, I'd gotten so, things had gotten so dark. Like, I mean, people, other drinkers out there will know, other alcoholics will know this sort of dark, dark, dark moment where, you know, for me, I was kind of seeing things a little bit at the periphery. I was hearing things. Um I was really losing it. And um, I said, this is a pro an existential kind of problem. It might help if I went back to mass because I hadn't been to mass in years. I didn't do any anything like that. And I went to St. Patrick's Old Cathedral on Mott Street in Manhattan, which was pretty close to where I lived at the time. And um, there was this young man and young woman who used to go there and they were really good looking, like really gorgeous. I mean, they just looked like they stepped out of a magazine and I was so jealous of them. I hated them. I couldn't bear the sight of them. And um, at the church, like to encourage people to go to mass, I suppose they used to serve tea and coffee and like little bickies and buns and whatever after mass. And um, I, you know, I would barely make it. I, would, I was always late and I would be in like some you know, I say in the book, like my, you know, thrift store trench coat thrown over my pajamas, basically. And I would 
you know, one Sunday I was walking out and your man was um, alone. He wasn't with the with the woman he was usually with. And um, I grabbed a coffee to go and he ran after me and he said, hey, do you want to get a cup of coffee? And so we both got coffees and went to a park bench in uh, the neighborhood. There's a little on Spring Street, there's a little um, uh, basketball park. And we went there for a cup of coffee and he he just started telling me out of the blue without any indication. I mean, maybe he sensed my, you know, he sensed I was a person in trouble, but he just started uh, talking about his uh, drinking life and, you know, the fact that he had gotten sober pretty recently. And I, it was just this moment of like, oh my God, you know, I, this is exactly the sort of thing my brother was talking about. I, I know this stuff. I know what he's talking about when he talks when he talks about these thoughts and feelings. I thought when my brother was discussing them that I was relating to them because he was my brother. But now this guy was talking about them too, and he has nothing to do with us. You know, I mean, this is there's something going on here. And when I was walking home, I realized like, oh my god, you know, I thought about all the people in my family who suffer from this illness. You know. I'm talking about siblings. I'm talking about certain aunts and uncles, certain grandparents, great grandparents. All the, I, I just had this re- moment, this moment of clarity, really, where I thought, like, you know, why wouldn't I have this too? Why wouldn't I also be an alcoholic? Like, what in me thinks I'm so different? And um, the next day, I should tell you that not that night I had crazy dreams, like crazy dreams, and then the next morning I. I woke up and I emailed that guy and I said, look, um, you know, will you take me to one of those meetings you go to? So that was the beginning. Yeah. Fantastic. And were you, were you writing at that time, Carmen? Um, I, I started writing probably about 2001 when I was on my trip around the United States. I started writing in earnest then. And I had been, but, you know, what I was writing was, you know, illegible, totally, you know, I, I have my notebooks um, I, it, with, I kept them, I kept them because I was like, I, you know, I want to keep a, you know, a, a, a memory of it. I don't want to forget this place I was in. And there's just such mumble jumble, manic, you know, just terrible stuff, you know. Um, but I still, I mean, I still got the odd writing gig. I mean, I, you know, got the odd review or the odd, you know, um, little article to write, but nothing, nothing I would be proud of today. That's for sure. But you have to, I suppose that's the nature of this thing is you have to yeah. write the bad stuff out before you can access the so. good stuff. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. I saw that you wrote some stories early on, short stories yeah. and that. But at some point, I suppose a hybrid memoir is really mm-hmm. the concept of that that came to you at some point, I presume. Yes. So that hybrid memoir idea came because I was struggling to tell the story of um, a life. You know, um, it didn't seem to fit the form Everything I was trying to say about how history uh, is interpenetrated into our present lives, how the reverberations of trauma through generations doesn't fit into a beginning, middle and end kind of narrative. Like I was born on this date, you know, this happened. I got sober on this date, you know, and now it's today. You know, like there's a so I thought I have to sort of expand 
the form in order to fit all of these concepts and ideas without i mean it's not an academic book it's not um no, no. it's not a history i don't have to go in depth into every single thing you know um i can make these broad strokes and i can do that with using uh photographs using poetry using essay and keep a lighter touch about a lot of this heavy heavy material you know and i think it makes makes uh, this stuff more accessible to a, a more a, a greater number of people somehow. Oh, I think there's no doubt about that. And as you say, it's not academic. Thankfully, yeah. it's actually, I, I know, I, I mean it, there's a lightness, a touch there, how you weave that stuff into your, your personal narrative. And it is very interesting. That, that whole area of um, intergenerational trauma, I, I think is an interesting one. And, you know, I was, I was just thinking about it there a while. Does it stop? I mean, you know, in, in some ways, you know, you talk about alcoholism and a lot of families, they have it down through the generations. And does that type of trauma stop when those perhaps at the youngest generation, like you mentioned, your brother and yourself might uh, overcome that kind of thing? Do you know what I mean? That, and that's just one element to that intergenerational stuff. But I just think it's interesting. And, and you mentioned the famine and a lot of things come back that far in the whole thing. I do. I think it's, it's you know, really a really important part of the book is the sort of the message of hope, if you like, because um, when I started writing this book, I was in a kind of a, a nervous breakdown and it was I was a couple of years sober. All of this grief was coming up, grief for my brother, grief for my sister, you know, um, grief for the wasted years of my alcoholic life. And I started Jungian analysis and I should before I say, you know, it's, that makes me sound like, a, you know, a grand madam going for her analysis laying on, on the couch. You know, they have these institutes all over the world where you can go for Jungian analysis for, uh, you know, what you can afford to pay, which was fantastic. Other, my, my friends were doing it and they were like, you should do this. You should get help here. I didn't have health insurance at the time. So this was perfect. So the, I was in the Jungian analysis at that time. And then right around then, a, a, a psychiatrist and neuroscientist in New York published a paper which was a decade after the the uh, attacks on the World Trade Center, right? Her name is Dr. Rachel Yehuda. Her whole um, uh, area of study is intergenerational trauma, uh, PTSD, all of the, you know, this is her, her specialization. And she, she discovered the publication was that the uh, the, the, the offspring of mothers who were present at the World Trade Center showed cortisol levels similar to those of their traumatized mothers. So this was, in a way, to back up earlier um, studies she had done on Holocaust survivors and their children. So specifically in this study, she was talking about mothers passing on through physiological change, changes um, caused by trauma that they were passed on to their children from their body to their children's bodies. She has since done studies on how traumas uh, suffered by fathers are passed on to children. But uh, at the time, she was talking about the maternal lineage. So what I found so hopeful about her was that she said, the, phys the physiological is not set in stone. It is open to change. 
And the, the biggest and the most important way that you can have, you can implement these changes in your life and the lives of others is to talk about this stuff, is to listen to people talking about it. And this, the neurotransmitters, all of these things, the messaging going back and forth. So I, I have hope. I, I mean, that was like, because prior to that, I thought, you know, um, with my family story, specifically with the impact of the trauma of my mother losing a child when she was six months pregnant with me, um, I thought, well, you know, what am I supposed to do? You know, my mother was incredibly depressed and suffering this tremendous loss when I came into the world. So, you know, does that mean I'm, you know, I, you know, this, this sort of Dr. Winnicott um, wisdom was the, the prevalent one at the time so that, you know, if you didn't get this particular kind of nurturing and you didn't establish these attachments, you know, then, you know, you're in trouble for life. So then along comes this woman and says, well, actually, you know, um, you know, the human, the human body, the human psyche, these things can be, um, there's, there's hope, you, you don't, it's not set in stone. And that is the crucial thing. I, I, that's what I found interesting. Kind of, there's an acknowledgement that that intergenerational trauma is there, but as you say, that doesn't mean you're predestined for that's it to right. pass on. That, that that it can be, it can be dealt with. Yeah, absolutely. And then, kind of closing the circle, you decide after what was it, well over twenty years, I think, in in New York to come back to Ireland. Yes. Was there always that? Because as we know, everybody who ever left this country at 19, 20 years of age was going for one, two, five years and 99% of them never come back. That's the, the nature of life. That's it true. takes you wherever. And yet you, you made it back. Was it always I there did. or did you did it come on you at a particular time or, or what was what drew you back at that stage? You know, it's it's this funny thing. Like I, I know in living in New York, you meet immigrants from all over the world. Mick, I mean, I, you you know, it's like you just your friends are from all over the world. Um, they don't seem to have the same pull on them. You know, my partner was born in Switzerland. He's not trying to move back to Switzerland. You know, I mean, he has a whatever, but um, they don't seem to have the same yearning to live in their country. Of origin, they just they that isn't there, but Irish people do for some reason. We, we're like you know we we there's something there. Um, so I don't know when exactly in the first few years I was living in New York. No, but somewhere along the line, I definitely did want to come back. But it's so hard to come back. It's you know I mean I remember my dad saying that when I was leaving. He's like someday you're going to want to come back, and it's going to you're going to see it was much easier to leave than to come home. And that is true because you do your your roots are put in you have your life is there and it's very hard to to pick them up and come back. But you know, it was one of the good things about the pandemic. It shifted every for a lot of people. I think it shifted a lot of um, where we were it shifted the ground on which we were standing, if you like. And it was like you know, how do I want to go forward? How do I want to live? Um, how do I want to live my life? You know, especially going into the second part, half of life, if you like, you know, um, I'm going to be 50, you know, on, on Sunday. So, I mean, I was thinking about all oh, those congrats. things. And I know it's brilliant. So I was thinking about all those things and, um, and we started looking for a house and, you know, one came up and we, we grabbed it. It was, uh, it was at an online auction. We hadn't seen it. Um, and but we loved where it was and it just it just the magical landscape. And we were like, I oh, will figure it out when we get there. And uh, we did. We just went for it. 
and we're very glad we did. There's a beautiful passage here, uh, Carmel, in terms of yourself and your partner. You mentioned he's he from Switzerland. I, I think it's always yeah. interesting that it takes an outsider to spot these things often. But there's a beautiful passage when, when, when you're describing you're heading up to Mayo where, where you mm-hmm. bought your house. And, and that your partner notices he's shocked by the presence of so many abandoned cottages, half crumbling stone structures and fields along the road. Why, he asks, do the farmers not knock them down? Surely they could use them for grazing and the stones for walls. Maybe the houses could be rebuilt and repurposed. And then you say, though we suspect they represent something deeper in the collective psyche. Perhaps they are symbols of unprocessed historical trauma or symbols of the desire to live connected to and alongside the dead. That um, mm. I just found that really mm. hit something. Yeah. Do you know, yeah. uh, it, it's out there. Mm-hmm. It's it's there before our eyes. I know, but I know. It, it takes a fresh pair of eyes to it's view true. it in that kind it's of way. True. I think you know, it's true. Well, especially he comes from Switzerland, where it's like you know we go to a forest here, and you'll see a well, I say a forest, a Sitka forest, and he'll you know he'll see a, a tree down, and he'll say, in Switzerland they would have made that into logs already. You know, they're, yeah. they're, they're very... In most countries use, they would have, yeah, yeah. oriented But there is something about the, the old cottages, you know, as you're driving out west and, you know, where we live in, in County Mayo, there's, um, you know, there's like a little village of abandoned houses there. And it's, it, it's very haunting, you know, it's very, very haunting. But I, I do sort of see these things as, you know, I know there's, there's very practical reasons why they're still standing and all of that. But um, I do sort of feel that there is still a lot of unprocessed trauma, you know, in the, in the cultural psyche, especially because, you know, when my parents were young, you know, in the 1960s, like they, they're, they're, they were trying to get on and start a new life and look forward, not look back. You know, there was all that in their, you, you know, in, in their collective uh, time, you know, it's like, it's not about the famine. It's not about the hardship. It's about, you know, like even where they moved, they moved to Ashbourne, which was a, a town of, uh, they, when they came here, a town of 400 people. Um, because, you know, in the housing estate that they bought on was like called the Garden City Housing Estate, the first American housing model in the, you know, it was like this kind of thing, you know. So, yeah. I mean, they, they were looking for a fresh, new, you know, opportunity, you know, so. Yeah, that comes across too early on, uh, Carmel. I have to say, um, it's a, a great read. And and the thing I really like about it is the parts that stay with you. Um, and I've read it a while back now, but long after you read the parts stay with you, I think it's fantastic. Congratulations. Well done on it. Thank you very much, Mick. And thank you for asking me on your show. Not at all. In Ordinary Times, Fragments of a Family History by Carmel McMahon. And it's published by Duckworth Books. Carmel, thanks very much for being with us today. Thank you so much. I'd also like to thank, as always, our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you, folks, for listening, and we'll be back with you very soon. Stay handy. Meet 2024's most anticipated robot vacuum, Eufy X10 Pro Omni. With powerful 8,000 PA suction and MopMaster's dual mop pads, it keeps your floor sparkling clean. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards, and Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.